Hebrews chapter 1, our final message in the opening prologue. Let us hear the word of God beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, all, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is the word of God. May he have his blessing to its reading and preaching through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? One of my favorite preachers was a 19th century man named Charles Spurgeon, who was affectionately referred to as the Prince of Preachers, who happens to probably be the most quoted person outside the Bible that I bring in the sermons that I preach. He had a great beard and great theology. Uh, one time he was preaching a message from Hebrews entitled Exalted Christ, and he imagines this hypothetical scene where God the Father is taking a vote among the hosts of heaven, and he's asking the host of heaven, who is deserving of the place of highest honor? And then all of the hosts of heaven say with one voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive honor and power and glory and riches. Heaven has casted its vote. Jesus and Jesus Christ alone is worthy of the highest place of honor and exaltation. And as we continue to work through the prologue and come to the end of this first chapter in Hebrews, I hope that you would agree and you would cast your vote that there is no one like Jesus. Amen? It's been a joy. It's been a worshipful pleasure to work through this opening prologue as we've come face to face again and again with the surpassing greatness of Jesus. Remember verses one through four form just one sentence in the original language, 72 words, 
all working together to find a shorthand way of expressing exactly why Jesus is like none other. And because Jesus is like none other, the writer of Hebrews is warning us. Because there's no one like Jesus, you better pay attention to what God the Father is saying through him. And so we read at the end of the prologue in chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay close attention to what we've had, what we have heard. And so we are seeking, brothers and sisters, to pay close attention to what is being revealed to us about Jesus as we consider the surpassing greatness of Christ in this prologue, which sets the stage for the whole book of Hebrews. We are to lean in, we are to listen, and we are to pay careful attention to what the Father is revealing to us through Jesus Christ. And this all serves together to support the big idea of the prologue, which also happens to be the big idea of the whole book of Hebrews, and it's this, pay attention to Jesus because there's no one like him. What have we considered thus far by way of review? There's a lot packed in here. We've considered that Jesus is the revelator of everything God wants to say to us, that Jesus is the possessor of everything. He's the heir of all things, that Jesus is the creator of everything through whom also he created the world, that Jesus is, ev- Jesus is everything God is. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Jesus is the sustainer of everything. He holds the whole universe together by the word of his power. He's holding us together right now. And Jesus is the only savior for every sinner. He made purification for sins and he finished that work because he sat down when he stepped off the cross and was raised and is now seated at the right hand of God. This is Jesus. There's no one like him. One more thought from the prologue, and that is this. Jesus is above everyone and everything. Jesus is above everyone and everything. He alone is worthy of the highest place. Look at verses 3 and 4 once again. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may remember from last week that he sat down because the work of making purification for sins was completed. Jesus offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of sinners on the cross. We don't see those words in the prologue, but every time making purification for sins is referenced all throughout the book of Hebrews, we are told exactly what he did to make purification for sins. He made the only way for dirty sinners to be clean so they can be, so they can be acceptable in the presence of God. He made the only way for guilty sinners to be delivered from the just wrath of God by dying in their place on the cross. And so the gesture of sitting down would be equal to the words we heard from Christ on the cross when he said, it is finished. The the ever-standing, busy work of the priesthood that's referenced all throughout the book of Hebrews is contrasted with the sitting down of Christ. Why? Because the priests always had sacrifices to make in the Old Covenant. There There was constant sacrifices that were needed to be offered for the constant sins of God's people to be a constant reminder that God's people were in desperate need of God's ongoing mercy and grace. But Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, 
and he sat down because that sacrifice was the sacrifice that all the sacrifices were pointing to. And that sacrifice, and that sacrifice alone was sufficient. My friends, before we even proceed any further, there's only one way for the guilt of your sin to be removed. There's only one way for your shame to be covered. There's only one way to get out from underneath that sense that I'm accountable to God and that I am in trouble because I've failed him over and over again. There's only one solution for that agitation of your soul. His name is Jesus. He did the work that's necessary for the purification of your sins. So you can leave today free in your conscience. You can walk out of this worship gathering today uh, light as a feather, although right now you feel like there's a great weight upon your soul, not because of our worship experience, not because of our liturgy, but because Jesus made purification for sins. Put your hope in Jesus. He finished the work. He sat down. But what I want to draw your attention to now is where he is sitting Look at the scripture again. He sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. The picture that's captured here is that after making purification for sins on the cross, Jesus is raised from the dead and he ascends on high. So where is he sitting? He is sitting on high. He's seated on high, which is an idiomatic phrase for heaven. Heaven is the general place where our triumphant Christ is presently seated. But in particular, he is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty is a reference to God the Father as the sovereign king over all. And here we see Jesus sitting next to him at the Father's right hand. What's the deal with the right hand? You may have used this phrase. What do you mean when you say someone's your right-hand man, right? I've even heard girls call their girlfriends their right-hand man. I guess we just all use that, right? Our right-hand man, person we trust, person we rely on, person that's always there, person that we divulge our deepest secrets and give great responsibilities to, people that we can trust, people we can count on, people who are always going to be there. And so Jesus sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, this is the Father saying that there's a relationship between me and Jesus. There's a relationship between the Father and Jesus that's unlike any other. He is more reliable. He is more trustworthy than anyone or anything. He's the right at the right hand of the Father. It's a place of privilege, a place of honor, a place of great responsibility. But in reference to this, this particular place where he's sitting, where is he sitting next to? A majesty, a magistrate, a king. This is a throne. So here is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father who is on his throne, meaning this. That as a reward for the accomplishments of Christ's death and resurrection, the Father has exalted his son Jesus to be his co-regent over all things. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is his exaltation. Theologian Peter O'Brien makes the observation, for Christ then, to be seated at God's right hand meant sharing the Father's throne. So in one brief phrase, making purification for sins, he sat down. In one brief phrase, we move from the crucifixion 
making purification for sins, to resurrection, to ascension, to the enthronement of Christ. This is shorthand for the gospel. The idea is that the author is exclaiming that as a reward for making purification for sins, the Father honors the Son for the work of redeeming sinners by giving him a special place of exaltation at his right hand. This is his worthy reward. Theologian Peter O'Brien again remarks in relationship to this text, Christ's exaltation was God's mighty act of raising him on high to a position of unparalleled honor and universal authority. The father says, my son, sit at my right hand and share in the honor of being above all and over all. This is prophesied of the son in Psalm 110 verse 1, which is alluded to here in verse 4 and then quoted again down in verse 13 where the psalmist prophesies Christ's enthronement when he wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Christ has received this position of special honor, shares in the authority of God the Father over all things, and there's coming a day, even though now is not that day, when it will be recognized and realized that everyone and everything, including the enemies of God, will submit and fall before the face of God. Paul picks this theme up and he says it like this, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the sovereign one, the supreme one, the one who's over all and above all. So Christ has given this special place of honor as a reward for the accomplishments of his life, death, and resurrection. But also notice that along with the special place of honor, the rest of verse 4 indicates that Jesus is given a special name of honor. So he's got an honorable position, and he has an honorable name. It says here that he's inherited a name that is more excellent than the angels. You may have noticed in the reading, especially verses 5 through 14, that there's a lot of talk about angels in chapter 1. Lots of contrasting between Jesus and angels. You say, man, they must have thought a lot about angels. Yes, they did. The Israelites in particular, um, they believed that there was no creature who had greater privilege and greater honor than the angelic beings. Why? Because they were God's special messengers, relaying the word of God. They were God's special servants, carrying out the will of God. And they were those who were were given the privilege of being closest proximity to God. You may recall, I mean, I could really take a lot of time to kind of trace this all throughout Scripture if this was the main point. This is not a main point, it's just an illustration of the main point in the text. But the angels had this special place of honor and privilege to be in closest proximity to God. For example, Isaiah 6, right? And above him, speaking of the Father on his throne, were the seraphim, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one cried out to another saying, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What a special place of honor and privilege to be that close to the presence of God's glory that they would be blinded by his brightness if they didn't cover their eyes with wings. I don't know, whenever I read that, I'm like, it'd be really cool to have three sets of wings, but I get distracted very easily. I want to see them someday, okay? But here's the point of the author. Angels are amazing, but Jesus is better. The author is saying, as honored and privileged are those who are hovering around the throne room of God, Jesus is better because he's not just hovering around the throne room of God, he is sitting on the throne at God's right hand. So the author goes on to make a big deal about this and actually goes off on this, this parenthetical, and if it wasn't inspired, I'd say a rabbit trail. He goes off on this this inspired rabbit trail, here you go, an inspired rabbit trail in verses 5 through 14 to contrast angels with Jesus and basically say, angels are awesome, Jesus is better. This may be one of the underdeveloped categories of our theology, angelology. Angels are amazing. Gabriel was a strapping warrior, man. You see what angels did to the enemies of God in the Old Covenant? Unbelievable. Michael the archangel, going, all right, Satan, you're going to vie for God's glory? I'm going to throw you down. And he tosses Satan out of heaven. That's awesome. Angels are awesome. Angels had the privilege of announcing the birth of Jesus. Thousands and thousands of years of anticipation. And guess who has the privilege of saying, he's here? The angels. As we get ready to celebrate Advent. Angels are awesome. But the author of Hebrews is saying, hold the bus. Jesus is better. <laughs> In fact, again, five, verses 5 through 14 are providing this parenthetical that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better than these mysterious heavenly messengers and servants of God. Uh, we're not going to go through it in detail because I don't even think it's the point to deal with these in detail, but you'll notice, as I referenced before, that Hebrews just loves to quote the Old Testament. 35 direct quotations, 50 plus allusions, and we have a a string of them right here in verses 5 through 14. And so in verses, in verses, in verse 5, the author quotes Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7 14, uh, arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels because Jesus has greater relational intimacy with the Father. The father never said to a single angel, you are my son. In verse 6, the author quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Psalm 97, 7, arguing that Jesus is superior in honor to the angels because Jesus doesn't worship angels, rather angels worship Jesus. Then in verses 7 through 9, the author quotes and contrasts Psalm 104, verse 3, and Psalm 45, 6, and 7, arguing that Jesus is superior in honor to the angels because the angels are sent to serve God's sovereign purpose, and Jesus is the one who sends them. In verses 10 through 12, the author quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, arguing that Jesus is superior in honor to angels because Jesus is the self-existent eternal creator while angels, as amazing as they are, are simply created beings. And then finally in verse 13, 
the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, coming back to the point of verse 4, that Jesus is superior to the angels because he is exalted above everyone and everything at God's right hand. Angels are awesome, but Jesus is better. All right, let me do my own little rabbit trail here for a minute. Did you notice how the author made his point? Did you notice what he did to argue his point? He believes that angels are awesome and Jesus is better and he's out to prove that Jesus is superior to angels, that his name is above every angelic name. What does he do over and over and over again? Come on, church, you followed it. He's arguing from scripture. Here's what God's word says. Here's why I believe what I believe. The scriptures sufficiently articulate this position that angels are awesome, Jesus is better. Shout out to a class last year that Sawyer taught on presuppositional apologetics. Right? How do we argue what we believe? Where does it come from? It's not, I feel this way, or I think this way, or it just seems like this way. No, no, no. The scriptures say this. Therefore, in my attempt to understand the scriptures accurately, appropriately, in their historical, theological context, this is why I believe what I believe. And that's what he's just been doing over and over and over again here in Hebrews chapter 1. So my friends, take that. And follow that pattern when you find yourself in disagreements and conversations with other friends who are Christians. As you kind of are, we do this. We we like to kind of debate theological positions and perspectives. Do it. It's healthy. It sharpens. In fact, there were probably a bunch of, there were a bunch of people hanging back after the intro to theology class this morning, probably wanting to kind of interact a little bit over thoughts that may have been new to them or challenging to them or different than they've always believed. And so dialogue happened. And all of that dialoguing with our brothers and sisters over theology, let's make sure we always come back to this. Thus says the Lord. The scriptures say. And as we're engaging with our unbelieving friends that we're trying to to, to proclaim the gospel to, we don't need to be cute. We don't need to be trite. We need to believe that God is going to use the unleashing of his word by the power of the Holy Spirit to awaken dead hearts to life and bring them to faith in Jesus. So, rabbit trail done. I planned on that, just so you know, guys. My rabbit trails usually add 10, 15 minutes to sermons at times, but I planned on this one. Angels are awesome, but Jesus is better. Why? Because the scriptures point to this. Jesus is seated in the place of honor at the right hand of God, sharing in the Father's rule and authority, and Jesus has a name that is above every name. Honorable place, honorable name, Jesus is above all. Isn't this exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10? Therefore, God, that's God the Father, has highly exalted him, that's the place, and bestowed on him a name, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some argue whether this honorable name is Son or this honorable name is Lord. I believe it's, the answer is yes. <laughs> Jesus Christ 
the Son of God is Lord of all, and that is his honorable name. So what's the point of all of this? As we've worked through this prologue, we've, we've sought to just marvel at how the text reveals the surpassing greatness of Jesus, and then we've sought to take some time to, to do what the author warns us to do, pay attention. What's he saying to us through this? So what does it mean that Jesus Christ is exalted above everyone and everything, that he has a special place of honor and a special name that is exalted above all? I believe that on a, on a large macro level, what this means is that because Jesus is exalted above everyone and everything, then he should be acknowledged and treated as such by all. I mean, in our cultural experiences, isn't this what we do? When someone is the best at something, when someone is the greatest, we honor them with special treatment. We give them special acknowledgments or rewards or bonuses or accolades or degrees. We, we, we show them that we believe that who they are and what they've done in a specific place, in a specific way, is worthy of honor. We do this probably more than anything in the sports world. Unfortunately, the Washington Nationals recently won the World Series. We got their best player, Bryce Harper, and they got the World Series trophy. I, I'm not sure that was a good trade-off, right? although I love Bryce Harper. And I'm not saying it's exactly, they won because they got rid of him. I think we will win. Anyway, um, but sorry, Hannigans, but they beat the Houston Astros in the World Series and proved themselves to be the best in baseball in 2019. In honor of them being the best in baseball, a non, they were treated in ways that no other teams were treated. First, they received an amazing trophy. A trophy that we received back in 2008. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to keep bringing it back to us. It's all about us in Philly. They received a trophy. They not only received the trophy, they, they received a, a parade in the, in, the, in the streets of D.C. where fans, millions of fans, crowded the streets and gave them cheers and hurrahs as they were acknowledged as the best team in baseball. As the 2020 season starts, they're going to hang a pennant with the number with 2019 on it that acknowledges that they won the World Series in 2019, and each one of their players will receive a ring that will be a permanent reminder that in the year 2019, they were the best team in baseball. All this is done to celebrate and honor a baseball team for being the best. When someone is the best, they get honored with special treatment. And so here's what the Father's telling us. Jesus is the best. There's no one like him. Read the prologue again if you need to. He's the revelator. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the owner. He's the savior. He, who else is that? Who else has done that? The answer is no one. Therefore, he deserves to be honored and exalted like no one. There will never be anyone in heaven or anyone on earth 
who deserves to be honored more than Jesus because there will never be anyone in heaven or on earth or for that matter under the earth who will be able to parallel the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is truly exalted above everyone and everything. So here's the question. Is that how you treat Jesus? Is there anyone or anything more important, more valuable to you than Jesus? Is there any cause more important to you than celebrating and spreading the surpassing greatness of Jesus? Does Jesus occupy an immovable, special place of honor in your life? Do you acknowledge him as your supreme authority? Do you want to see Jesus lifted high in your home, on your campus, on your block, where you do life? Do you want to see him highly exalted? The Father, at the end of his prologue, is inviting us to see Jesus the way he sees him, worthy of being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so as you process that question, as I process that question, I, I naturally have to deal with another question. Who am I tempted and what am I tempted to put in the place of supreme honor in my life other than Jesus? Who are Christ's rivals for me? Money, the things money can buy, relationships, sex, reputation, academic or vocational achievements, power, influence. What is it? We all have something that typically rivals the highest place in our hearts and in our lives. I'm a little bit of a church history geek and I love reading the early church fathers. So every once in a while, I like to introduce you to some of them. Uh, there was an early 6th century church father named Ocumenius. Dude, that's a great name. Ocumenius, who said, For having once and for all taken his reign, he pronounces all things inferior without fear. This is the opposite. If Christ is supreme because of his special place and special name of honor, then that means everything else by comparison is inferior to the surpassing greatness of Jesus. And so, Hacumenius is saying, don't be afraid to acknowledge this. That there's, no, that there's no one and there is nothing that rivals the surpassing greatness of Jesus. All things are inferior to Christ. All things are inferior to Christ. Christ is highly exalted, not me. I am inferior to Jesus. Christ is highly exalted, not money. 
Money is inferior to Jesus. Christ is highly exalted, not academic and vocational success. Success is inferior to Jesus. We could go on and on and on. All things are inferior to Christ. So whatever it is you are seeking to save you, satisfy you, or sustain you, other than Christ is inferior. No one is like Jesus. So whatever rivals the place of Christ's supremacy in your life, don't be afraid to say it. It is inferior. And that's good news. And that's liberating because Christ is sufficient. See, Jesus is not only better than the angels, Jesus is better than everyone and everything in the created universe. And this morning, if you've lost sight of this, come back to seeing Jesus high and lifted up. And like the writer of Hebrews, live your life. Not only to believe this and experience this yourself, like the writer of Hebrews, give your life to the cause of letting others know it's true as well. What is the writer of Hebrews doing for us, besides providing for us an inspired piece of scripture? He's modeling for us what you do with the fact that Jesus is above all. You spread the supremacy of Jesus to everyone you possibly can. Look at us. 2,000 years later, still listening to what this author said as he boasted in the surpassing greatness of Jesus. That's what your life is for. That's what my life is for, to boast and the surpassing greatness of Jesus. So live to let others know that he is sufficient. Live to let others know that all things are inferior to Christ. Live to proclaim through your words and your deeds that Christ is the revelator, the creator, the sustainer, the possessor, the savior, the God of heaven and earth who is able to do for us what no one else can do for us based on the accomplishments of his life, his death, his resurrection. And right now he is seated at the right hand of God, not just simply showing off his supremacy, but is willing to help us in our time of need. That's our exalted Christ. Believe it, lean into it, and spread it to anyone who will listen. So as we, as we land this this morning, as we finish this prologue, as we conclude the first chapter of Hebrews, what starts off as a power-packed prologue, exalting their surpassing greatness of Jesus, now is teased out through the rest of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is not just better than the angels. As we, as we take a tour throughout the book of Hebrews, as we continue to proceed, we're going to see that Jesus is superior to everything that the old covenant foreshadowed about him. That Jesus is better than the angels as a servant of God. That Jesus is better than Moses as the prophet of God. That Jesus is better than Aaron as a priest of God. That Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices offered up to God. That Jesus is better than the temple as the place man meets with God. That Jesus is better than the patriarchs as guides into the promised land of God. And Jesus is better than the old covenant, period, as a mediator of the promises of God. We're going to get to see this teased out as we proceed over the next several sermons.
So the point of the prologue is the point of the book. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is above everyone and everything. Therefore, we ought to value him and honor him unlike anyone or anything. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing to us through your Holy Spirit in the scriptures that there is absolutely no one like Jesus. Thank you, Father, that he is seated right now at your right hand, waiting for that time when he will make even his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus, thank you for doing what you did to receive that place of honor and to receive that name that is above all names. Thank you for leaving heaven and coming to earth, living the life that we couldn't live, dying the death on the cross that we deserve to die, and being raised from the dead so that we who trust in you are forgiven all of our sin, are delivered from all of our guilt, are covered from all of our shame, and become blessed and beloved sons and daughters of God forever. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. And we agree with the hosts of heaven. We agree with the writer of Hebrews. For this and so much more, you are worthy of the highest place. And so may we live, may we so live, may we so choose May we so feel like this is the best news ever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.